Constructionist Radio presents The War Room, where we discuss tactics for strategic Christian living. I was at RTS. I came to RTS in 74. Then I was on an internship in Asheville, North Carolina, uh, and that's when Greg Bonson had come to RTS. And when I got back to RTS, uh, Greg was a professor there, and I was on the student council when things kind of went theologically, administratively, uh, and faculty uh, sideways. And I think a lot of it had to do with you know, fundraising, there were people out in the in the hinterlands who were um, out in the hinterlands who were complaining about, uh, you know, the mess, word that was coming back from the, what was going on at the seminary with Greg Bonson and so forth, and so financial aspects were part of all of this. It was right about the end of the 80s when Christian Reconstruction was declared dead, I believe, late 80s or early 90s. Of course, the the reports of, of its demise have been greatly exaggerated in, in the words of uh, Mark Twain. Yeah, I think, a lo- I think a lot of it had to do with there was no longer a, a center, you know, for young people to go to in order to study under someone. And with Greg Bonson at RTS, I mean, he was a draw, he was a draw from young, stu- from, you know, young uh, students that, hey, I want to study under Greg Bonson. I heard a lot of good things about this guy. And so when I graduated in 1979, and I believe Greg left in 1979, uh, there really was no place you could go to, you know, to study. Uh, and so I think that's, I think that's what led to the, this impression that somehow, um, uh, you know, Christian Reconstruction had died. But uh, what brought it all back to life, again, really was never dead. It was just displaced and underground was, uh, was, you know, with the internet, kind of what you're doing. I mean, who would have thought 
back in the 70s, you get on the phone and, you know, record an interview, put it up on, you know, online and, and send it out to, to literally millions of people, make it available. I mean, that, it, everything has changed as technology has changed. Well, you have been involved in helping to shape the message since you were an analyst at American Vision, probably one of the reasons why the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, considers you to be one of the most dangerous men in America. <laughs> yeah, they, you know, that's a, that's a big fundraising trick. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is out of Birmingham, Alabama, and it's interesting that the Southern Poverty, Southern Poverty Law Center, they, they, poverty is not Poverty is in their name, but poverty is not their business. Their business is to raise a ton of money. And early on, the Southern Poverty Law Center did some good things. You know, they they exposed some extremist organizations, you know, like the KKK and so forth. But pretty soon, they ran out of candidates they could raise money for, raise money from. So they had to come up with a, a new way to raise money, and that was, you know, this uh, idea of haters, hate, you know, hate criminals and hate speech and hate views. And so they went after conservative Christians, and they started, you know, raising money. And they, you know, anybody who disagreed with them on the homosexual movement or abortion or radical Islam and things of that sort, oh, we got another one. And and so you could you could scare these people across the country and say, boy, they could be your next door neighbor, and they could be in your schools, and they could be teachers. And and so the money started pouring into the tune of probably a quarter of a billion dollars. The Southern Poverty Law Center you know, has, has raised off of this idea of, of hate groups. You know, in a lot of people's minds, I think probably widely in the uh, in the Reformed community, some of the larger mainline denominations who are confessional but are not, uh, by and large, post-millennial and, and, and to some extent have, have, have proven to be somewhat not only critical but hostile to theonomy, I think they would probably say that the glory days of Christian Reconstruction was back in Tyler, Texas, and uh, when uh, Gary North and, and Sutton and Jordan and, and, and others were uh, assembled together, you've, you've, you've ridden out the, the waves and the, and the troughs of this. Obviously, as a post-millennialist, I, I, I'm sure you're committed to the idea that our best days are ahead of us. We have many listeners who were not self-conscious Christian Reconstructionists, but have found themselves to be bedfellows because they were theonomists. They were committed to the law of God being the basis for the uh, call to end abortion and to oppose other uh, social cancers that we face. And so they have sort of slidden into, next to many of us who, who, who've who've gone by that moniker that, that for some time, and many of them are, are, are now beginning to study R.J. Rushdoony, or they have found some of your books or Gary North's books in, into their uh, reading list. And so it, it is a, it is a, it's growing, and it's not necessarily coming from the mainstream congregations, but really Christian activists maybe speak to that crowd in terms of, what they need to know about Christian Reconstructionists, past, present, and future. Well, again, I, I, there's a certain amount of truth to the fact that uh, when the Tyler group broke up and Gary North left there and uh, you know, James Dor Jordan and others, uh, David Chilton, were scattered hither and yon across the United States. And, of course, David Chilton died 
a relatively young man. The biggest biggest blow, of course, was when when Greg Bonson died. I mean that that hit hit all of us really hard. It's uh, it's hard to hard to explain to young people today the impact that Greg Bonson had on on so many of of us. I'm 67 now. I mean, I was a, I was in my 30s when I met Greg Bonson, and he's only a few years older than I am. Uh, and uh, the debate, on the area of debate, uh, just reasonable thinking and you know, for, forcing us to think clearly. I mean, Greg Bonson was at the, at the top of anyone's game. There wasn't a better apologist for the Christian faith anywhere in the United States other than Greg Bonson. Um, and for those who don't know, uh, Greg had a congenital heart defect, a, a, a bad valve, and during his the third surgery to replace that valve, he just he did not he did not survive. He survived the operation, but I, I, I believe uh, he, he went into cardiac arrest soon after that. That was a that was a huge huge blow to, to you know to all of us. But I think what what happened with all of that is is that there were enough of us young guys. I'm more of a popularizer than any, any anything else, uh, and helping people understand these things in, in more um, easier terms. I can take Greg's stuff and, and Gary Norris things and Rush Judy's and so forth, and put them in put them in a way that you know, more bite-sized pieces and not pieces and not so uh, uh, you know academic. Although I footnote a lot of a lot of my my material, um, so. And I think what what's happened is, of course, is the, the technology has just changed all this. Uh, you, I mean, there are reconstructionists, whether in, in name, self-identified name, or just people who believe in these type, types of principles. They're, they are literally all over the world. That's, that's something that was not the case in the late 70s and early early 80s and even into the 90s. Uh, and so, I mean, all of Gary North's economic commentary on the Bible is online. I mean, you don't need, you don't have to spend a dime to buy those 31 volumes. They're all online. Uh, I, I, I post an article almost every day, not, not always related to Christian reconstruction per se, but I just wrote an article yesterday on, um, John Piper's exposition of Matthew 24 and other prophetic passages and put it up online and, Already, I mean, I'm, I'm getting responses, you know, from you know, all over the world regarding it. It's got, you know, somebody from, from Italy. Now, before, I would have had to have written the article, get it edited, get it typeset, you know, send it off to the printer, and we had a magazine that came out every month. But we gave that up, uh, you know, a magazine every month worth maybe six articles. Where today, Joel and I, can we can each write an article a day. We're looking at 60, we're looking at 60 articles a month that people can get immediately. I mean, all of this has changed as a result of all that. The number of publications that have come out, the number of ministries that have that have arisen as a result of all of this, Christian schools, publications, business establishments, and so forth and so on. People have to contend with our arguments, and I think we've led the way in a lot of different areas. The way people argue their case—that was one of the things that was so great about Greg Bonson. He really taught us how to argue our position from a presuppositional vantage point, and that has worked tremendously in dealing with the homosexual movement and has dealt with, and also with the abortion movement. People are starting to think presuppositionally. They're beginning to ask, what is the ultimate basis for your thinking and justification for your belief? 
So I really think Christian Reconstruction today is, is, a, is a growing movement. Dispensationalism is, is dying as a scholarly movement. It's still popular. I was, in fact, I was a number of exchanges on Facebook with a guy who's a, face, you know, a dispensationalist who you know, gives the standard old arguments. Uh, dispensationalism is dying. Twenty-some years ago when I did interviews on eschatology, I mean, I used to get hammered from people all the time. How can you say this? And, uh, you know, you're a heretic. Uh, you know, my wife, when she worked with with us at American Vision, would get phone calls from people. She she never let on that she was married to me. And these people would say nasty, nasty things. Uh, and I've done interviews in the in, you know, recently from people uh, with people, and people would call in. And, I, I you know, you still get some of the, the same negative uh, responses, but it's amazing that people would call in and say, "I read your book," uh, I, or someone would call in and say, "Look, I never, I, I didn't know anyone else believed the way you know I believe, and I, you know, I've come across you know your uh, your interview and so forth." Uh, I, I think that the it's a dramatic a dramatic change going on out there as as unbelieving thought is becoming more and more consistent with itself and beginning to disintegrate before our eyes. Uh, the establishment of Republican, Democrat politics, um, which is still a problem, but have no solutions to problems. So we're, we're waiting them out uh, as they begin to collapse around us. We're building a, a more comprehensive worldview in order to replace, I mean, bit by bit, uh, what is going to be collapsing in the next maybe 15, 20, or 30 years. Well, you really matriculated out of seminary and were ready to hit the ground just about at the same time that the Internet really was giving you the, the engine that you needed. And, and you Now, is it true that Gary North really only types on two fingers? Yes. He types one finger on the actual keys and another one on the space bar. And he still and he still writes books fast so oh, people read them. Yes. There, I mean, there is just... There is nobody like Gary North when it comes to cranking out material. And it has forced, you know, I, I feel, ter- I've written 30, 30 books. I just finished a book. I've written 30, 30 books. And I, I feel like, I, I feel so inadequate. You know, people say, you've written 30 books. Yeah, but you, you, compared to Gary North, I haven't written a whole lot of stuff. Uh, of course, Rush, Rush, think about Rushdie. Rushdie wrote all of his books with not, not even with a typewriter. He wrote it with a with a, a pen that you de- actually dip in ink. Um, I mean, it's just you know it's amazing what's what's happened. And of course, uh, Rush's material is getting out. And Rush left a, a a small library of unpublished material out there. There's a ton of stuff out there, and that's that. And we continue to publish material out there. And the internet has made you know has made all this possible. Well, and of course, it was uh, with. Uh the gracious um, uh, permission of Gary North and Mark Rush Dooney and that we were, we've been able to begin to produce audio versions of these, of these publications and, and, and position papers. The, the audio narrations really produce a great demand for the print volumes. Hopefully you see an uptick in orders because once people have had a chance to sample them and get a flavor, they say, well, no, I really need to get this in paper form because I really need to be able to take notes and reread and, and underline right. and things like that. So so hopefully that doesn't uh, that doesn't uh, cut into the sale of actual books, but it actually uh, stimulates it. 
Yeah, yeah. We just put we just put books up in various formats. You know, there are a lot of people who still like print, and there are people who like electronic stuff. So we we just use different formats. So, and what's the nice thing about what's happening happened technologically is anytime you get a book before, people have no idea of getting a, what it took to get a book to publication back in the '70s and the '80s. Today, I mean, I can I'm I'm working on this book on my on my computer. I can typeset the whole thing on my computer, turn it into a PDF. Send it to a printer, get a blue line back, approve it, and have that thing printed within a week. And I don't have to do three thousand copies like you had to before. I mean, we could do a, you know one copy or a hundred copies or two hundred or three hundred copies, and also we can get a, an electronic version up, you know, immediately if I have to. So it's 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 the dramatic shift. It's like going from uh, uh, you know Morse code back in the in the, in the 19th century. Uh, you know, to, you know, to, to today. I mean, it's, it's, it's changed that much. It's just dramatic. And, you know, yeah, I would say that if you're looking beyond the exegetical proofs, if you're looking for experiential proof uh, to support the case for post-millennialism, the enhancement of the technology, we, you know, we call them tools of dominion, the improvement and the continued improvement at a mind-boggling rate of the technology available to us is 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 a is good inference if, if you didn't have anything else that God expects us to achieve more than we could ask or even imagine. We're very grateful to be a, a part of a small part of that in terms of Reconstructionist Radio. Now you produce a daily podcast as well, do you not? No, I, used to, I don't do that anymore. Uh, uh, I'm thinking about getting back to doing it again, but that's when we had a couple of extra employees and, and so forth that I, I did it. And it just, it took me, since I, I really prefer to write, um, I, you know, it just cut into my, it just cut into my, my, uh, my researching and so forth. So, but I, I may, I may gear it back up again after I get this, this particular book done. And I'm also, um, I'm in the talks with a filmmaker about doing some some film projects. Um, so um, it, it just you know we're going to see what this year brings about uh, in, in, in that area. Yeah, just recently uh, Jordan Wilson and some other reconstructionists have uh, kicked around the idea of creating an alternative to Facebook, so that there's a social media where there's not the threat of censorship. So there's a lot that can be done still. It just is lacking for the person to pick up the the, the shovel and start to do it. Uh, I mentioned to Joel that uh, so many people can't read while they're driving, but they can listen while they're driving. If if nothing else, when you publish an article online, if you can take five minutes to read it and create an MP3 out of it, we'd be happy to host those. And, of course, I'm sure you'd host them on your own website, which, by the way, what is the best site for people to follow you and to read all that you're producing? Well, two, two places, AmericanVision.org, AmericanVision.org. Uh, if you want to, any of my books, <clears throat> you can get them through there. Uh, I, don't public, I don't put up as many articles because you know, Joel is now the, the president of American Vision, and uh, I've, I've kind of turned that platform over to him. Although I do write periodically, this article I just wrote last night and, and put up uh, put up today, it'll probably appear on AmericanVision.org. Plus, I have my own site called just called GaryDemar.com, 
And I generally put up an article every day. Also, John Livingston, John uh, uh, goes to the same church that Gary North and I go to, Midway Presbyterian Church, and he'll put up a couple of articles a week, too. So I generally get up five articles a week on GaryDemar.com, and uh, periodically I have, I have an article up on AmericanVision.org, but Joel McDermott, has uh, he, he typically puts up an article every day. Plus, you can go to American Vision and see what books we have available. And we want to give a shout-out to our friend uh, Tim Brown, who runs Freedom Outpost for you, I believe. Yes, yes. Freedom Outpost, Eagle Rising, Godfather Politics, uh, GaryDemar.com. These are sites. uh, uh, They are for-profit sites. That's really how I make my living now. I don't get paid anything in American Vision. I make my living... Uh, from you know from these uh, from these sites and I have an, we have an email sending business called Inbox First where we send emails out for uh, various uh, companies uh, so that that get, frees me up uh, you know from you know to do to do more writing and do more research uh, American Vision one thing is I hated about American Vision I had to ask people for money because it was a 501c3 organization so I don't ha- I don't have to do that anymore that's that now that's Joel's job. Is it is it unfair to uh, to suggest that your focus has has uh, been redirected slightly since uh, you turned over the pre- uh, the head of American Vision? Well, what I I you know I kind of in the area of eschatology is I I enjoy working in that field and you know uncovering new things and explaining things. So I've 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 done a lot of work in the area of eschatology, and I enjoy doing it. People, there's a lot of people out there who are still interested in in uh, in, in eschatology, and there are tons of people out there who are um, chained uh, socially and politically, economically, and so forth to an end time view, where they always see that Jesus is going to come back soon, and everything's going everything's getting worse and worse, and nothing we can do about it. And, uh, and that's how I got into the eschatology stuff because I was dealing with worldview stuff. And then people would say, "Wait a minute, why are you talking about all this stuff? Because Jesus is coming back soon, and I needed to give an answer for that." And uh, so I I started writing in that particular area. So eschatology is an area that I spent a lot of time in, um, and a lot of exegetical work in that area. Some, you know, there's just a lot of stuff in eschatology that has not been done yet. That's why my new book, Wars and Rumors of Wars. A lot of material in there that um, you know people have not really dealt with certain passages in a very very good way. Um, John Piper wrote something uh, over the weekend, and it was a uh, you know it wasn't a very good way to answer somebody who had questions about eschatology. And but I've incorporated all of those in my book, Wars and Rumors of Wars. The other area that I've I've been involved in over the years is uh, America's Christian history. Um, and my, my position is a little different from David Barton. You know, a lot of people say that we were founded as a Christian nation. Uh, that isn't, I, I don't use that kind of language, but there's no way you can understand the founding of America without Christianity. So I deal with, I deal with that quite a bit, and I've written quite a bit in that area. And that's, American Visions kind of started as a, you know, a Christ, you know, America as a Christian nation idea. And uh, and uh, but I I moved it more into the direction of a Christian worldview uh, idea, and then ethics. Go ahead. 
I was going to say it, you you should, would subscribe to the thesis advanced by Gary North in the book Conspiracy in Philadelphia. I you know I I think Gary North is is right that the the Constitution it was a huge huge uh, uh, coup to remove you know the the, the basis of the nation. If, if, if you look at the if you look at the state constitutions, the state constitutions, many of them were specifically Christian. They weren't just generally religious, but they were specifically Christian. In some states, you didn't believe in the inspiration of both the Old and the New Testament. You were you could not hold office. Um, you didn't, you know. So there is no doubt that that's the case. If you look at uh, North Carolina, all the way up until I think 1870 something. Uh, you you had to you, you had to believe in the you know, in, in the authority of the Bible to hold office in the state of North Carolina, and the National Constitution actually did not overturn any of those uh, those um, state constitutions because the it was the states that insisted that they wanted a the First Amendment that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That prohibition is only addressed to the national government, Congress. And the states wanted that because they wanted to be able to do what they wanted in terms of religion. Uh, over the years, however, the courts have incorporated the states into the national constitution. Uh, and so now the, 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 the issue of the, the, the constitution of the United States begins with we the people, uh, rather, you know, rather than we the states and makes no, no, no deference at all to religion. There are a couple of places in there. The Constitution says it's done in the year of our Lord. Sundays is set aside as a day of rest for the President of the United States. But there is this, uh, the article in there dealing with no religious tests. Um, and, but this, I think the states wanted that as well. They, they said, look, we have a religious test. Is there going to be a, a congregational religious test, a Baptist religious test, a Presbyterian religious test, a, a Church of England religious test? Um, that, that was, you know, that was kind of the downfall of the Constitution. We're still fighting that argument today. But if, but if the National Constitution had made some reference uh, to, to Jesus Christ, like the National Reformed Association wanted it, to do, of course, which was much, much later, um, you know, not that the courts would have paid any attention to that, but it would have made a huge difference in, in the way that we look at our nation today. Here you've got Samoa, uh, to, you know, has, has declared itself to be a Christian nation. It is now, it is written into their constitution. And they've done it because, yeah, they, they've done it because they see what this, you know, religious pluralism, uh, what what it's doing. It, it, it leaves the gate open for Islamic extremists. You get enough Islamists in here and to vote, they could, they could completely turn over the Constitution. So, and, but, yeah. but the area of ethics is another area that apologetics and ethics, uh, the, the moral implications of, of evolution is another, another subject that I'm working on. Well, ethics seems at first, at first blush to be sort of a, a very esoteric Topic, but when you consider uh, issues like uh, unjust decisions of courts, the prison system, and things, you realize that that there are a, there's a lot more that touches on the topic of ethics than you might originally might initially think. A, a widely held misconception about post millennialism, and that is that it 
posits an unbroken chain of progress, I would say, I'd like you to comment, uh, belief in a comprehensive gospel victory in history does not preclude periods of judgment and or even regression for in those cases where nations insist on rebellion against God and he finally drops the hammer on them. Would you speak to that as, in terms of where we are sort of on the cycle of, of history and progress? You know, many people decry the, the sad state of, of, of American culture, uh, and they would say that we're already under judgment, that, you know, they, oftentimes I've quoted Calvin, when God judges a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. So they would say judgment isn't coming, it's here. Do you study international doings and, and national news and such? Will uh, anticipate revival, where will, it, where, where will it come, or will America join Rome and Samaria and in Egypt on the ash heap of history, and God will continue on with his his advancement. Well, I mean, if you do if you do study history, um, here all you have to do is go back to the very first century, and here Jesus comes on the scene, and then the gospel is poured out, the Holy Spirit's poured out, the Pentecost. You got these thousands and thousands and thousands of believers. The gospel goes throughout the the, the known world. I mean the. In, in Colossians, it says the gospel has been preached to, you know, to all creation under heaven. I mean, it's, it's that comprehensive. In R- Romans 16, it says that the gospel has been preached to all the nations. That's why that passage in Matthew chapter 24, 14, that the gospel has to be, has to be preached to, you know, to the whole world, to all the nations. Uh, that, that Greek word there is, is, is oikomene. It's the same Greek word that's used in Matthew chapter 20. Uh, let's see, Luke 2, 1, where it talks about the, 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 there was a census to be taken of the whole whole world. The Greek word there is oikumene. So the gospel has gone out through the entire Roman world, but at the same time, there was this grand persecution that took place. So here you have, at, 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 you know, the two essentially two tracks of a you know in a, a, rail, a, a railroad going on you know side by side. You have an advance of the gospel, and at the same time, you have this persecution. Uh, taking place from 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 two sources, one from within from within Judaism, and with and, and outside later on by by Rome, and anybody back in those days could have looked at one one track and said, "It's Jesus is coming back," you know, in our day. Uh, this is the end. There's no way we can sustain this. And then on the other track, you could say, "Wait a minute, the gospel is going about the whole world." I mean, the Apostle Paul was, was, was planning to go to Spain, and we know historically that the gospel has, in fact, circled the world. So it depends on which track you're looking at. Um, I, 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 there are two tracks, uh, and I, as, as each track becomes consistent with itself, you begin to see the, the tension taking place. And I think in our day, what's happening culturally is the result of Christians Sitting back uh, because they've been taught this two kingdom idea that you know we we don't have anything to do with this world we're pilgrims just passing through and we we let the other side essentially take over every area of life. This is this Antonio Gramsci. Uh, he, he he saw this uh, rather than going into the streets and and and, and 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 mobs and killing people. He says no no no. What we need to do is take over all the institutions. Uh, you know from the, the media of the day, the education, the arts. Music, whatever the case might be, you want to change the culture. That's what you have to do. Well, Christians weren't interested in any of that. They weren't interested in taking uh, you know, taking back the, the culture, even though 
if you look at look at the history of, of, of the world, you'll see that chemistry and music and art and science and so forth was the basis for all that in, in our day was was based on on a Christian worldview. Well, Christians because they believed they were living in you know this, Francis Schaeffer really developed this idea that we were living in two spheres, two two levels. We were living in this you know this the upper chamber while the while the secularists were living in the lower chamber. And never the twain shall meet. And he said, look, we got to break through all of that. And that's when Christian Reconstructionists came around and said, absolutely right. But unfortunately, Schaefer was a premillennialist. He didn't believe that it was possible to bring about fundamental change. And so the eschatology began to kick in, and Christians began to see. Anytime they saw that one, one track of the, of the railroad track, they concentrated on it, saw that as an end-time sign, and began and began to leave society more and more than they had before. Uh, so I, so I, I look at a passage like Second um, Timothy chapter three, where the Apostle Paul, in in the first seven verses of that passage, uh, it, it reads like today. And I always tell people, I said, look, read the first seven verses and tell me what you think. And it, it, it's horrendous. Men will be lovers of self, they'll be unloving, irreconcilable, they're treacherous, they're reckless, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Um, Paul says to Timothy, avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. And people would say, yeah, that Paul is, he is describing our day. No, he's not. He was describing Timothy's day. Because realize this, talking to Timothy, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Well, last days in the Bible isn't sometimes distant in the future. The last days, they were living in the last days, the last days of the Old Covenant. Paul was describing to Timothy what was taking place. And notice what happens next. In verse 8, it says, And just as Jan- Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men of the praised mind rejected as regards the faith. Well, who were in the world were Janice and, and, and Janice and Jambres? Well, they were the, the two sorcerer high priests who were, who had surrounded Pharaoh's throne when Aaron and Moses came in out of the, the wilderness. And all Mo- Moses had was this, this stick. That was it. And he goes up to Pharaoh and says, you know, let my people go. And, you know, what, what a joke this is. But we know what, what happened is the, you know, the Janice and Jambres threw down their sticks that became serpents and Aaron throws down his rod and it becomes a serpent and he consumes those, those two. And that was a, that's the, that's the symbol that's going on here because what Paul says next is, but they will not make further progress for their folly will be obvious to all as also that of those two came to be. Then he says, but you follow my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, Persecution, sufferings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So Paul is describing his world as two tracks. You can see this on one track, and you can see this on the other track. And as as each track becomes more and more consistent with its operating assumptions, something's going to take place. On the one track, on the secularist, materialist, evolutionist side, as they become more and more consistent with it, you're going to see that their folly will be obvious to all. Then Paul says on the other track, this is what you as Christians need to do while that's taking place. Um, so you see this all the way through history. It's the same principle all the way through history. 
And what we forget as we get pro- we we progress in the gospel, we get self-satisfied in all of this, and we become Christian diabetics. You know, we've eaten so much of the sweet life uh, that you know we're we lo- losing our toes, we're going blind, and we don't have any way to fix anything anymore. And the next the next thing is to die. We have got we have Christians today have to get off of the eschatology wheel, and they've got to get on the worldview wheel and begin to to reconstruct their own lives and their families and the in the school situation and economics and so forth to apply the Bible to every area of life. Because I guarantee you the other rail on the track is gonna is, is going to self destruct. They're killing themselves through abortion. They're they're sterilizing themselves with this whole homosexual transgender movement. Their folly is being made known to all. Now there's you know, it's it's affecting us right now. But if Christians were united in a, and, and, and worked against this, uh, we, could, we could change our culture within a few years. But unfortunately, Christians don't know how to do any of this. Yeah, I, I, I think it's been notable that uh, so many people who identify as Reconstructionists have opted to homeschool their children. And I think that in some respects, maybe one of the best hopes that America has for a revival is a few generations of homeschooled children, provided that uh, that it, it's they're not inculcated with this dispensational mindset. Yeah. Uh, we have a program on the War Room, uh, the Post Mill Report, and uh, Nathan Conkey, who's down in Pueblo, Mexico, does that. And really, I can understand while if all you do is look around at popular culture, you may not see much proof of. Of, of progress, you really almost have to look abroad right now. Most of the good news, it seems, as far as the advance of the kingdom and, the, and, and, and a, a militant Christianity is in places like Brazil and China and perhaps uh, parts of, of Africa and, and India. Yeah, I was talking. To, I was talking to Gary North yesterday, and he was talking about this fellow named David Watson, who's been setting up Gary. I, Gary North like a hundred thousand churches in India. Uh, they're not big churches, and uh, so. And we were, my wife and I were in China a few years ago, and um, we met with these on fire you know, Christians. Uh, again, I, I think as you know, society begins to collapse, and people people are going to, are, are going to uh, turn to things. There's a, I read this the other day. It was um, Stephen Jobs, kind of the the last kind of the last thing he said before he died. Um, and uh, and I wish I had it in front of me. I can't remember all the details of it, but it was like, you know, I got all this money, but it's really, it's you know, that's not the important thing. As I come to the end of my life, it's family and you know, love and the you know, he just went on and on and on. It's just kind of this gushy, gushy thing. But yeah, that that's absolutely true. It's unfortunate it took him that long to figure all this out. And, and it, but we as Christians have figured all that out. Uh, we just have got, got to convince ourselves and others, look, you know, if, if you apply God's word to every area of life, it changes dramatically. You, you saw it in your, in your person, you know, we, we are you know, new creatures in Christ. I mean, the new creations in Christ. If we can recreate ourselves through the, through the hope of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, and then, and, and, and bring God's word into our life, well, the same can happen when you with raising your children and education and whatever your job is. You got tens of millions of Christians in the United States today. You got the homosexual movement, which is a 
a tiny fraction of that, making making all this impact. And we're sitting there, you know, with you know, sucking our thumbs. It's like we can't do anything. Woe, woe is us. It, it's really, it's really a shame. You know, I, I, it, one of my a, a tragedy, uh, tragedies, and I, and I realized this later in my life is that I had been a, a, a Christian for upwards of, of probably 25, 30 years before I really understood that eschatology made a difference and, and why it's relegated to a tertiary or secondary issue. It, your view of the future really does have everything to do with how you structure your life and, and, and plan for the future. And and uh, I want to shift gears uh, slightly uh, because you mentioned Islam, and, I, and um, of course, I, hell hates a vacuum. I don't know if Islam is as much a religion as it is a political ideology posing as a religion, but it certainly is making inroads. And what's so, what's so troubling, Gary, is the fact that People in civil government seem to be very amenable to it. It's like they're they're embracing it. You hear stories of you know Brentwood, Tennessee, a new mosque, Islamic prayer in public schools. If you speak a little bit to the to the eschatology of Islam, it's post millennial. See, Islam is post millennial. So they make, uh, they would make uh, an Islamic convert would make a good Christian Reconstructionist. Well, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, here you go. Think about it. Imagine going, you know, trying to go, try to convert, try to convert a, a Muslim. And there are some conversions, but giving, giving by giving them this idea, well, the Bible really doesn't apply to every area of life, um, uh, and uh, we we're going to lose in history. We, we we're on the losing side. And the Muslim says, "Why would I want to be? A, why would I want to associate with your religion when, according to me, according to my religion, uh, our holy books apply to every area of life, and we're on the winning side, on on in in, in this age and the age to come. Why, why would I want to shift? Uh, you have nothing to offer me, uh, and it's just it's it's shocking. And I, I think with a lot of a lot of people, they they think, well, if we're just nice to the Muslims." They'll like us. That's the way the Republicans work towards the Democrats. You know, if we just, if we don't really, address, you know, say mean things and if, we're, if we don't, you know, we aren't so dogmatic and if we give a little bit here and give a little bit there, you know, they'll like us. But has it worked with the Democrats? It hasn't. Uh, it's interesting that Trump, you know, love him or hate Donald Trump, Donald Trump went out there and he took it to the Democrats and the people finally he started to sound like a post-millennialist. Well, yeah, you know, you're going to get, you're, we're going to win so much, you're going to get tired of winning. I mean, that was a post-millennial message. Now, not from you know, our theological perspective, but think about it. People, when he did that, that video online has been saying that, what are the people doing? Oh, no, 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 we don't want to win. We can't win. No, they were cheering. Finally, somebody's, you know, talking about the future here. Um, and the Democrats and the liberals in general can't handle what Trump's methodology. They can't do, deal with it. They've lost. Uh, you know, I mean, look what you just got to go on online today and to see that the, the Democrats are discombobulated. They don't have the slightest idea what to do. And here we are as Christians, we've got the Word of God, we've got the Spirit of God, 
we, we used to have all the institutions. We have at least still the freedom in this country to educate our children the way we want. We could all take them out of government schools and, and educate them in the, the way we want to educate them to get the state out of our lives, and we don't do anything about it. And they're saying, oh, well, you know, the world's getting worse and worse and worse, and there's nothing we can do about it. Well, it, don't, don't blame that on the gospel. You, the, the message is in Scripture. Do, do what it says. Oh, I can't afford to send my children to a, or, you know, to a, to a Christian school or, you know, or have our church do it, and it might upset people who send their kids to public school. And I, I don't know how to homeschool and that kind of stuff. I mean, it, you know, it's a sad sack religion. It's, it's, it's too bad when you compare it with Islam and you get some idea of why it advances the way it does. Uh, one of, uh, one of the, of the, uh, I just, if you'd speak a minute on, and I don't know that they're considered to be a major force, uh, in, in the minds of most, but I, when I drive around, I see a lot of apostolic churches. And, uh, the new apostolic reformation and are some of the charismatic assemblies that, that, that possess this dominion theology. How does that differ from biblical post-millennialism, Gary? Um, that, that's an interesting question, uh, because early on, back in the 80s, we, we spoke at a lot of charismatic churches. They were just, they loved our message. They just did. It's unfortunate they had a number of corrupt leaders in the church. Bob Tilton was, was, was one of them. Um, but a couple of years ago, I was invited to speak at a church in, in, um, in Kansas, um, that was charismatic, and I, I went in there and gave basically an exposition of all of that discourse in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and gave this, never used the term post-millennial and so forth and so on. And I, I didn't receive a single negative comment. And the pastor of the church got up and gave one of the best post-millennial messages that I had ever heard, and yet he had no idea what post-millennialism was. It was actually is that one of his associates who has been reading my my material that invited me to come you know to go and speak at that church there is a general general optimism among charismatics unfortunately some of their theology is a, is a little askew uh but you know hey i'm not going to write them off uh, jesus you know you know said as much you, you can't you can't write them off no, the, the the better ones will come around to a more solid as a solid theology as, as I've seen over the years. Um, so it, it's it's a it's a wide open field, uh, you know, for for us. Um, but you've got to go in there with a very positive message, or they're not interested. That's just um, and there was a great deal of interest in in this, probably more from charismatic circles than anywhere else. But, uh, but he doesn't talk about it anymore. Of course, now he's shifted, and now he's become. Orthodox, you know, join the Orthodox Church, and that's, and I think they're more all and so forth. So a lot of people will have lost churches uh, because of their over their eschatology. So they don't say anything about it. I've always been in a position where that hasn't been the case because I never changed my eschatology. American Vision um, was, you know, that was my position from the from the get go. We had a very very large donor from Texas. Who was a big Tim LaHaye fan, and uh, I I never pulled back on my eschatology. Well, eventually he he dumped the the, the whole dispensationalist dispensationalism, 
and became became a preterist, not through me, but through but through some other people. Uh, so a lot of it is job related. A lot of in I don't go out of my way to to be disliked. Uh, I have a saying, you know, don't give anyone an excuse for rejecting your position other than the position itself. I lay my position out there. They can take it or leave it. I, you know, I, I try to be as nice as I can about it. I, I, I don't attack people personally, although when you attack a position, people say, why you, why did you, why did you attack, um, uh, John Piper? Well, I didn't attack him. I critiqued his position. Um, so, you know, it is it is tough for a lot of people. Uh, can, can so, you, uh, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but there's two questions I'm burning to ask you. One is, could you just briefly, for those who are not as eschatologically erudite, and they've heard the term partial preterist, and yet people who've been of, who've held that position for a long time, oftentimes just refer to themselves as preterists. And yet there is a full preterist position yeah. that many would warn people to avoid. Yeah, I call myself a part. I call myself a partial futurist rather than a partial preterist because I think most of the New Testament is in fact preterist. I think most of the New Testament refers to events leading up to and including the destruction of Jerusalem in AD seventy, and that's not a new position. If you if you Milton Terry Milton Terry wrote biblical. Uh, hermeneutics and, uh, uh, and biblical apocalyptics. And both dispensationalists, it's funny because dispensationalists and non-dispensationalists use his hermeneutics book. But he was a, pre- he was a, what we would call today a partial preterist. Uh, and, and if you look at commentaries going all the way back, John Lightfoot and, and, um, uh, Thomas, uh, let's see, Adam Clark, who's a Methodist, Thomas Scott, uh, most of these older commentaries, at least on Matthew chapter 24, were preterists. They saw Matthew 24 as applying the, to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. You really can't read it any other way. Um, and I, I, I've dealt with this in my little book, uh, Jesus Coming Soon, Last Day's Madness, and I have this new book coming out, Wars and Rumors of Wars, uh, which I go through Matthew 24 verse by verse by verse compare it with um, some parts of Mark 13, Luke 21, and other passages in Luke. Um, and uh, so this is a very, it's a very orthodox position in the sense that, you know, I, the New Testament talks about events that were on the horizon. The time is near. These things must shortly take place. Uh, this, the, the, Peter writes, the end of all things is at hand. People say, well, he really didn't mean that. Yes, he did. He did mean it. He meant that the things related to the old covenant were coming to an end. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. Um, what, so, what, is the, what, what is a full preterist as we as we've come to hear the term recently? Full preterist would say all all anything related to prophecy was fulfilled before that first generation passed away. And so First Thessalonians four, uh, uh, which is a used by the dispensations, a rapture passage about we will, you know, Jesus will descend and we will be caught up in the air. They say that's that's taking place again uh, already. Uh, uh, first Corinthians. So they would, so they would deny they would deny a bodily resurrection of the of the dead and our physical return of Christ. Yes, they would deny they would deny that there's a future a physical coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, they would say that the resurrection takes place 
when you die. You get a new body when you die. The body in the ground. Look, there are diff- just like there are different eschatological positions generally, there are different varieties of full preterism and like there are different varieties of partial preterism. Um, and, and people people draw the line you know, in, in different in different places uh, as to where this verse or that verse. To, to me, I, I, it's very it's very easy for me. I just say, look, when when you're given a time indicator, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And every time this generation is used, it always refers to the generation to whom Jesus is speaking. You can't all of a sudden change it in Matthew chapter twenty-four, thirty-four. When you see words like near, shortly, quickly, at hand, um, soon, they're telling you that these events are were on the horizon for that particular audience. You can't say, well, that's near for God or soon for God. Um, you know, one, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, et cetera. Look, those words mean near means near Soon means soon. Shortly means shortly. At hand means at hand. Uh, quickly, quickly doesn't mean well. When it happens, it will happen fast. Quickly means it, it it's going to take place. It's going to take place soon. And look, all you have to do, and I tell people this: this is this is you don't have to be a seminary graduate to do this. Get a concordance. Look up the words near, soon, quickly, at hand. Usually. The, the Greek word angus is often translated at hand or near. Um, and, and just look at every one of them. That's what I did. I looked at every single one of them to see how they were used. And as a result of that, I had to conclude Jesus was describing events that were going to take place before that generation passed away. Um, this is not this is not a new thing. It's it's always been uh, that's always been the case. Is uh, you, of course a lot of people have watched the uh, interview or the uh, debate between uh, you and Gary North and and, and Tommy Ice and, and Dave, Hunt. Is it time, Dave Hunt. Yeah. Is it time? Is it time for another debate, or is there just no one left that's willing to? to I can't. Well, it's it's. <laughs> I've debated Tommy Ice nine times. I oh, really? debated, debated Dave Hunt quite a few times. I've debated some other guys. I debated Michael Brown on the um, replacement theology question, and I was kind of surprised we had that that debate. And he agreed with he agreed with everything I said about replacement theology. Uh, about the there really isn't any such thing, um, and uh, but he's he's stuck on the land promises. Those land promises made to Israel. Those land promises made to Israel. I I asked David. I said, Dave, when do they take place? When did when did Israel get these promises? Uh, fulfilled. I said they don't get fulfilled during the Great Tribulation period that you believe in because it, according to your position, two-thirds of the Jews living in Israel during the Great Tribulation are going to be slaughtered. And I said, how do you answer that? And he didn't have an answer to that. Um, no one I know of has given me a good answer to that. How how the, the, the end-time system, he, he's not a dispensationalist. He's more of a classical premillennialist, uh, Michael Brown. He could not answer Zechariah 13:8. How that fits into an end time scenario for the Jews, where there's really another Holocaust, and you know, you, you find you find people like Dr. Brown, who's a great, great guy, great apologist, great defender of the faith, saying, you know, this is you know, for, you know God's promises to Israel. I said, how can God make a promise? You say God's making this promise to Israel, 
And yet, as part of that promise, two-thirds of them are going to be destroyed during the Great Tribulation period. Uh, they don't have an answer for this. And, uh, but we do. The, the promise, the, the threat was made by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, and Jesus warned them about it, and he told them, you, you need to get out of town. You need to head for the hills. You need to go to, to the hills of Judea. Leave everything behind. The dispensationalists can't teach that today because they believe all the Jews should be in, in stay in Israel. But according to their position, two-thirds of them are going to be slaughtered. Any chance, Gary, that you're going to be writing any fiction or any children's fiction to maybe propose what gospel victory might look like as the, the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the water covers the sea? I would love to be able to do it, but I just don't think I can. <laughs> Man has got to know his limitations, and I just don't think I've got it. I've got fiction. I have fiction in me. I mean, I, I'd love to work with somebody who was could write fiction and, you know, say, hey, got to deal with this, got to deal with this, got to deal with this. I, I just don't think I just don't think I could I could do it. Um, well, listen. Uh, speaking of limitations, uh, we've we've got, we've exceeded the time that that you offered, and and I appreciate so much you joining us. Uh, we've gotten our cue to start rolling, and we're going to be headed up to Washington State. But um, well, if we get you on again, we're going to ask you to walk us through some of the actual argumentation and how you might go about helping your amillennial and dispensational and historical primo friends begin easing them towards a, a proper understanding of these of these events and timelines and and and, and you really first and foremost an, uh, an exegetical kind of guy i mean yeah right and you, you you can't deal with the millennial question until you deal with the preterist question because every time you bring up the millennial question people keep going back to uh, the Great Tribulation, wars and rumors of wars, uh, uh, you know, earthquakes and so forth and so on. So I clear the table of all that first, and once you get that out of the way, it's easier to deal with the millennial issue. Okay. Well, Gary, we uh, uh, we appreciate you so much, your, your work and your time. And, uh, folks, we thank you for joining us today on The War Room. Thank you for joining us in The War Room. Please enjoy The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2 by my soul among lions.